Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings. And we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. At the beginning of the pandemic last year, I did an online book club. Uh, we met for 12 weeks. It was really awesome. Some of y'all were in it. And we went through this book, The Story of God, The Story of Us by Sean Gladding. In fact, Sean actually joined us for a majority of the weeks. It was an awesome, awesome time. Awesome because we had community, but also awesome because this is a great book. It is a dramatic retelling of the biblical narrative. It tells the story of the Old Testament from the perspective of the Israelites in captivity in Babylon, gathered around a fire every Sabbath evening telling stories. And then it tells the New Testament story from the perspective of a Christian woman who leads a church in her home in the first century. Now, I'm telling you about this because I want to start this morning by reading you the opening paragraphs from this book, because it really sets the scene for the scripture that we're going to be looking at today. So... Here's what it says. The old man walks slowly down to the river, as he does every Sabbath at about this time. The week's work is done, and his people are gathering around the fire to break bread together and to talk. For once, the mood is light, and the old man leans back against a tree and closes his eyes. For a moment, just a moment, it is almost possible to imagine he is leaning not against this willow tree, but against an olive tree, one of the trees in his beloved garden on the land which his family farmed for centuries. His mind drifts to another time and another place, and a smile creeps across his face. But then someone plucks a discordant note on a harp, and the mood is immediately broken. Rarely, but rarely do his people sing anymore. And everyone turns to see who has lifted the harp. It is a young man, the protege of one of the renowned musicians among his people. The old man cannot remember the last time he heard him play, and so he leans forward, curious as to which of the songs of praise of his people the young man will sing and why. But as the young man lifts his voice to the night sky, unfamiliar words leave his lips. It soon becomes clear that this is a new song, a song that gives voice to their deepest feelings, a song that speaks to the ache of the heart of their situation, a song of exile. He sings, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. The young man pauses and then repeats the line. It is a familiar tune. And as he begins again, a few people join their voices to his. As they sing, some, some among them even begin to shed tears. The young man continues, we hung our unplayed harps upon the willows. For there our captors demanded we sing songs for their amusement. They tormented us, saying, sing us one of the happy songs of Zion. He pauses again and then looks fiercely at those around him and loudly sings, but how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? At this, those around the young man begin to weep freely. Sitting here in exile, it is hard for them to believe that their God is the one true God. If that were so, how could the Babylonians have defeated them? How could they have been carried off into a foreign land far away from their homeland, the land that God promised them? How did they end up here? How did they end up here? 
Better than anything else I've ever come across, that captures what life was probably like for God's people during their time in Babylonian captivity. It was a time of pain, of despondence, of questioning. How could this have happened to us? Where is God? Has he forsaken us? Has he forsaken his promises to us? How did we end up here? This is the backdrop of the Old Testament book called Psalms. Now, most scholars believe that these poems and songs of praise, sorrow, petition, and thanksgiving were compiled during and after the Israelites were enslaved in Babylon. The people of God needed songs to sing during their time in captivity and after they returned to begin rebuilding their broken communities. So they began to compile old songs as far back as King David and also to write new ones. What I just read from the story of God, the story of us, is a reimagining of how Psalm 137 came about. Here's what it says. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captives asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? See, what they are really asking is how can we praise God when everything around us is going wrong? This was their question. And how could you blame them? They had been through some really tough things. When Babylon came and laid siege to their nation, their leaders were either killed or incapacitated. Their temple where they worshiped was burned to the ground. They were forced to leave behind their homes and their ways of life to become slaves for their enemy. It's no wonder they're asking, how can we praise God when things are like this? Now, I have a hunch that a lot of us have asked that question at some point over the past year. You see, for many of us, these last 14 months have been filled with loss. People have lost their jobs, lost relationships, even lost loved ones. Many of us are carrying those weights right now. Others of us are carrying other kinds of burdens that have nothing to do with the pandemic. For some of you, it's a burden of trauma, You've been through some unimaginable pain at the hands of someone else, and that trauma, it just sticks to you like glue. There are things that you can't even anticipate as you walk through the normal seas of life that trigger you back into that trauma. Others of you are sick, or you've lost your job, or you're fighting for your marriage, or you're just trying to raise your kids the best way that you can. You're facing these obstacles, these huge obstacles, and you have no idea how to get around them. Maybe this is a difficult time of year for you with both Mother's Day and Father's Day coming up because maybe you've lost one or both of your parents or maybe you've lost a child or maybe you are trying to have a baby but you haven't been able to yet or maybe you just have a really complicated relationship with your parents or if you're a parent with your kids And these holidays just bring all of that up every year. You don't quite fit the greeting card version of Mother's Day and Father's Day. And this time of year, these holidays, they're hard for you. Or maybe you are about to graduate or you just graduated. 
and you don't really know what's next, and it's kind of freaking you out. Some of you are struggling because you're grieving one of those losses I met, I mentioned earlier. Loss of job, loss of income, loss of relationship, or loss of a loved one. You thought it would be better by now. You thought you would have just kind of gotten over it. People said that, that time heals all those wounds, but it just hasn't yet. And you're not really sure what to do. Or maybe you are weighed down by issues of injustice and inequality in our country and around the world. You turn on the news or you scroll social media for a couple of minutes. If you do that, you'll find something to be legitimately burdened about. And still others of you, you're burdened about the uncertainty of the future. You're not sure what this next season is going to hold for you or your family. You are awaiting kind of the, the continued reopening of the country in a lot of ways, and, and you're nervous about it. You have anxiety about it. This, all those things I just mentioned, this is what the Psalms were made for. They capture the emotional roller coaster that is life in the most beautiful and raw way imaginable, all while pointing us back to our ultimate hope in God. Pastor and author Tim Mackey says that the Psalms are a prayer book for exiles designed as a virtual temple. You enter the Psalms to meet with God. No matter where you are or what you're walking through, no matter how much you're struggling or questioning or hurting, these psalms, these songs are a virtual temple where you and I can meet with God. The psalms are how we find our singing voice, even when things are hard. 150 different songs and poems make up the psalms. The first two, Psalm 1 and 2, actually introduce key themes that run throughout the whole book and really throughout the entirety of Scripture. So Psalm 1 talks about God's promise to raise up this king who will defeat evil and sin and violence and death, all those things that plague humanity. And this king is called the Messiah, the Savior. Later, we find out that his name is Jesus. And Psalm 2 claims that this Messiah king will create a safe space of refuge a home, a kingdom for all who trust in him. And then after the introduction, the next section is actually Psalm 3 through 14. Now this is significant because the one we are focusing on today, Psalm 8, is right in the middle. Psalm 8 is an old song written by King David about the majesty of God. There's this reference to looking up to the stars. So people have inferred that maybe David wrote it when he was a shepherd boy out tending the sheep and looking up at the sky one night. Now, as the Psalms were being compiled during and after the Babylonian exile, the organizers of it decided to place this song, this song of David, exactly in the middle of 10 songs of sorrow. You tracking with me on that? This psalm, Psalm 8, is directly in the middle of 10 songs of sorrow. The five before tell the story of King David crying out for deliverance and restoration as he hides, afraid of those who are trying to hurt him. And then the five after tell about the poor and afflicted who cry out to God to free them from the oppression that they are dealing with. The people who compiled the Psalms did so and put Psalm 8 in the middle with such purpose and precision 
that the five songs of sorrow before Psalm 8 and the five after have exactly 64 lines each. I mean, it is right in the middle. The placement of Psalm 8 is a reminder to humanity then and now that God is worthy to be praised even when we are powerless, even when we are pressed, even when we are going through difficult times. Because God is with us, even and especially when we are struggling. Psalm 8 has a singular characteristic, which makes this praise in the midst of sorrow thing possible. It's actually the only psalm out of 150 that is addressed entirely to God. There aren't requests for circumstances to change or enemies to be vanquished like we find in the vast majority of other psalms. It has been placed here with the purpose of drawing our attention away from the circumstances around us in order to focus on God. Psalm 8 is not about what we need from God. It's not about what we want from God. It's simply about God, his majesty, his power, his provision, and most of all, his deep love for us. So with that backdrop... Let's dive in. Psalm 8, starting in verse 1. You can look it up or the verses will be on the screen. It starts out, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, I have to fight the urge to sing the Michael W. Smith, uh, Sandy Patty, you know, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth right now, because that is what I grew up with regarding this psalm. And now it's probably stuck in your head if you know that song for the rest of the time. But as much as I love that song, as much as I love this verse, O Lord, our Lord, is actually not a great translation of what David's actually trying to to say here. Because it leads us to believe that the word for Lord is repeated twice. O Lord, our Lord. But it's not. It's actually two different words in the original Hebrew language. It translates to Yahweh Adonai. Yahweh Adonai. Yahweh is God's name. That's what they called God. Yahweh was his name. And then Adonai means my Lord. So this is a name followed by a title. It's like someone calling me Zach the pastor. David is saying that Yahweh is the Lord. That is his title. That is his role. But there's more because Adonai is actually plural here. That's why we have the translation our Lord instead of my Lord. So David isn't just saying that Yahweh is his Lord. He's actually saying that Yahweh is our Lord collectively, which if you think about it, that's an absolutely scandalous statement to make in the context and culture David lived in, but even more so as the people in Babylonian exile sang it in front of their captors. This song makes the bold claim that Yahweh is Adonai, is Lord of all. Not just the Israelites, but the Babylonians who had taken control of them, enslaved them. Yahweh is in charge of the whole universe. This song doubles down on that claim in the next few lines. It says, Yahweh, you are Lord of all, and your praise reaches up to the heavens. It is sung by children and babies. You are safe and secure from all your enemies. You stop anyone who opposes you. When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. 
David, you see, when he wrote this, he's shocked as he looks up at the night sky that this all-powerful creator, God, would show compassion on him. Show compassion to humanity. That God would spend his time thinking about us and caring for us and providing for us. Now, this was a common thought process in the ancient Near Eastern culture, not just with the Israelites, but with virtually every nation in that time and place. They would look up at the sky, and that's what the word for heavens in verse 3 literally means. It means sky. So people would look up at the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, and they would think, we humans are nothing. We are so small. We are so insignificant. There must be higher beings who are running this show. And the most commonly held belief for people and religions in the ancient Near East was that there were multiple gods who controlled everything. See, the Babylonians, where they sang this song around the fire that night, as depicted in this book, the Babylonians believed that the sun was a god, that the moon was a god, that the stars were gods, and so on. This song not only declares that those things aren't gods, it declares that the supreme god, Yahweh, actually created them. They are the work of his fingers, the psalm says. Now take that understanding and consider what it would have been like as the people of God sang Psalm 8 in Babylonian captivity. This is a song of defiance as the Israelites walk through some of the hardest time of their lives. They are refusing to bow to the gods of their captors. They are refusing to give in to the brokenness that they are dealing with. Instead, even in the midst of pain and questioning, they choose to praise God. But it doesn't stop there. There was another huge difference between Yahweh and then all of the other kind of pagan gods of this time period. You see, in every single ancient Near Eastern religion, including in Babylon, humanity was created with the sole purpose of pleasuring the gods, making life easier for the gods. One of the ancient stories of Babylon says that the role of humanity is, quote, to assume the drudgery of the gods, to bear their yoke, and to carry their burdens. That's why so many pagan religions during this time practiced human sacrifice. You see, anytime something went wrong here on earth, whether it was crops not growing well or disease spreading through the community, the people assumed that the gods were angry. And so they offered up this human sacrifice as a gift, hoping to appease the god or gods. If you think about it, right, a single person's life didn't mean much in the grand scheme if they were able to use it to please the gods, to get the things on earth, their circumstances to turn around. But Yahweh... Yahweh is different. Not only does he value human life by condemning human sacrifice, he made humanity in his own image and gave us authority. Back to Psalm 8, verse 4. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Yet you made them inferior only to yourself. You crowned them with glory and honor. You appointed them rulers over everything you made. You place them over all creation, sheep and cattle and wild animals too, the birds and the fish and the creatures in the seas. Now that language in that psalm may sound familiar because it kind of harkens back to the opening page of scripture. In Genesis 1, it says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This was radical, y'all. 
radical for this time. God created humanity in his own image and then gave us authority over all of creation. Not to selfishly consume and deplete it, but to cultivate it and to promote the flourishing of all things and between all things. Consider the Israelites singing this song in the midst of captivity. So David identifies these two big reasons that God should be praised no matter what is going on around us. Number one, he's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is majestic and powerful and the one true God. Number two, he cares deeply for humanity. He made us in his image and empowered us to lead. So David ends this psalm back where he started. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Singing songs of praise to God in the midst of difficult times is not confined to King David or to the Babylonian exile. This is not just a phenomena that is present in the Old Testament or even just in the New Testament of Scripture. Worshiping in spite of our burdens and brokenness is actually central to our legacy of faith. In his pivotal work called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, theologian James Cone describes how important singing about Jesus was to black Americans during the eras of slavery and lynching and Jim Crow. Here's what he says. During my childhood, I heard a lot about the cross at Macedonia AME Church, where faith in Jesus was defined and celebrated. We sang about Calvary, And asked, were you there down at the cross when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. The spirituals, gospel songs, and hymns focused on how Jesus achieved salvation for the least through his solidarity with them even unto death. Penniless, landless, jobless, and with no political or social power in society. What could black people do except fight with cultural and religious power and pray that God would support them in their struggle for freedom. Black people, quote, stretched their hands to God because they had nowhere else to turn. So black folks, black Christians walking through unimaginable oppression, stretched their hands to God because they had nowhere else to turn. This is a part of our legacy as Christians. We see the same thing from people of faith fighting uh, and dying during World War II. Many songs of praise and protest were actually written in Nazi Germany, including some from inside of the concentration camps themselves. One of them defiantly proclaimed, For us there is no complaining. Winter will in time be past. One day we shall rise rejoicing. Homeland, dear, you are mine at last. Another one, my favorite one, went like this. But the day will come, one day that will set everything free, that which is consecrated to the highest glory. Cheering, singing permeates the land from all the mountains it rings. The kingdom of our Lord has arisen. The kingdom of our Lord has arisen. Y'all, for thousands of years, from captivity in Babylon to concentration camps in Nazi Germany to plantations during American slavery, the people of God have been stretching their hands and lifting their voices to God when they had nowhere else to turn. Even in the middle of sorrow, even when we don't have answers, even when everything feels so broken that we think there's no way that it can be fixed, we choose to sing. 
we choose to praise God because he is worthy of it. Our God is worthy because he created the entire universe and then made us in his image. Our God is worthy because even when we turned our backs on him, he came for us. Our God put on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and waded into the brokenness of this world to pursue us with his relentless love. He is Messiah. He is Savior. Our God humbled himself even to death on a cross so that he could do the work of the Messiah the Psalms promised, battling against evil and sin and death. And then our God won that battle defeating sin and violence and death and evil by rising from the grave. He overcame evil with good and death with life. And now he offers his resurrected life to anyone and everyone. That is how the Israelites could worship at a foreign land. That is how Jewish folks could belt out a song of defiance and joy, even in a concentration camp. That is how black folks could praise God even in the midst of slavery. And that, my friends, is how we can sing even when things are hard. Like the sisters and brothers who came before us, our songs are a declaration that we will not be defined by the brokenness around us. Our voices joined together and lifted high are a collective refusal to collapse under the weight of our burdens. Even when things are hard, our God is worthy to be praised. Choosing not to be defined by our circumstances is a core virtue in our faith. What we are going through does not determine who we are or how we act. Instead, we are called to choose to be defined by who God is and who he says we are. His beloved image bearers whom he loves so much. On the night he was arrested, Jesus told his closest friends that he was going to die soon. He also told them that they themselves had a long, difficult road ahead, one in which they would face tremendous pain and struggle, and many of them even death. But after all of that, Jesus's last words to them that night were, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We can choose peace. We can choose hope and we can choose to sing praise if we choose to focus our eyes on God and not our circumstances. No matter what we're going through in this world, we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. We're going to end our gathering this morning by giving us all the opportunity to choose to sing praise. The band is about to lead us in one of my very favorite songs. It's called So Will I. Now, to be honest, I prepared this because I thought we were going to have an outdoor gathering. I thought a lot of us were going to be together in person and singing this. We would be able to, to lift our voices and hear each other out on the football field at Lively Middle School in South Congress in Austin. 
But y'all, God is so much bigger than that. He's so much bigger than all of us on a football field. He's so much bigger than us being defined by a specific time and a specific space. You see, no matter where we are right now, or even when we are engaging with this, we are in this together. We are in this together. I put all of the so will I statements from the song down. I wrote them down here and I want to pray them over us before we sing. I changed all of them to so will we to help us remember the power of community. Because remember y'all, our voices joined together and lifted high are a collective refusal to collapse under the weight of our burdens. Our songs remind us of who God is and who he says we are. They lift our eyes from focused on the circumstances around us to being focused on God, his majesty, his glory, and his deep love for us. So let's pray, and we're going to sing together. God, you are good. You are enough. God, you are with us even and especially when things are hard. So no matter what it is that we're going through right now, no matter what our circumstances look like, God, here and now in this moment, we choose to lift our voices in praise. God, if creation sings your praises, then so will we. If the stars were made to worship, then so will we. If the mountains bow in reverence, then so will we. If the oceans roar your greatness, then so will we. If the wind goes where you send it, then so will we. If the rocks cry out in silence, then so will we. If creation still obeys you, so will we. If it all reveals your nature, so will we. Jesus, if you left the grave behind you, so will we. If you gladly chose surrender, so will we. If you gave your life to love them, so will we. God, if everything exists to lift you high, so will we. No matter what is going on, no matter what we are walking through, we choose to lift our eyes and focus on you because you are where our hope comes from. Let this not just be our legacy. Let it be our here and now reality of choosing to find our hope in you. Fill us with that peace that surpasses all understanding. Remind us that even though we may have trouble in this world, you have overcome the world. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the way that you love us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.